Well, brothers and sisters, we are once again back in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we're going to uh, pick up with verse 31 this morning. Verse 31 through verse 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, With you I am ready to go to both prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Father, accomplish what you will through your word this morning. For our good and for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, Jesus was in great danger, as we know, the night that he sat down to celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples. Judas Iscariot had already made his deal with the Jewish leaders for 30 pieces of silver. He would deny the one whom he had called master. And as Jesus said himself, after breaking the bread and Passing the cup, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. Even before the meal was over, Judas slipped away to let the religious leaders know where they could capture Jesus in secret. Armed men were on their way to do him harm. In less than 24 hours, Jesus would be dead. The disciples, too, were in danger. They were up against the deadliest of all enemies that night, the devil himself. But they didn't realize this, which made their situation all the more dangerous. We ourselves are in the same danger until we find safety in the Savior. Jesus had been in danger since the beginning of this chapter when Satan entered into Judas, as we read in verse 3. This was a clear instance of demonic possession. 
Only it was not simply an ordinary demon who entered into Judas. It was humanity's oldest enemy, Satan himself. And Satan wasn't content with only Judas. He wanted Peter too. And we must assume that he had designs on all of the other disciples as well. If he had his own way, if Jesus would have allowed him, he would have entered into each of them. But Peter is the disciple who is specifically mentioned here. Jesus turned to his disciples that night and said, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Jesus was saying something that Simon Peter desperately needed to hear. Satan was trying to destroy him. It's not surprising, of course, that Satan would go after Peter. After all, he was the leading disciple, the first among equals. Peter was the first disciple that Jesus called, the first to confess him as the Christ, the first to get out of the boat and walk on water for as long as that lasted. If Satan could destroy Peter, he could destroy them all. And this is what Satan was really after. Jesus spoke to Peter, but what you can't see in the English translation is that when Jesus says Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, he uses the plural form of the pronoun you. He's saying, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you like wheat. The devil wanted more than Judas and more even than Peter. He wanted all of them. Maybe the devil tried to claim that the disciples were really his to begin with. Satan's the great accuser, after all. In fact, this is what his name means. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. When it came to the disciples, there were a lot of accusations that he could bring. These men were far from perfect. Did they really deserve to be followers of the Son of God? Would they really remain faithful until the very end? Satan didn't think so, and he demanded to find out. He wanted to sift the disciples like wheat. In other words, he wanted to toss them in the air the way a farmer tosses his grain to separate the wheat from the chaff. Maybe the disciples were solid enough to land back on the ground, but maybe they would get scattered by a harsh wind and blown away. This is often how persecution works. Persecution comes against those who profess to be the people of God, but not everybody stands in the face of persecution. Some of them are blown away. Some of them become fearful. Some of them say, when I professed faith in Jesus, I didn't bargain for this. Jesus is not worth prison. Jesus is not worth my life. This past weekend, as we gathered together there for this retreat, the theme of the weekend was Jesus, our greatest treasure. 
And throughout the weekend, we were asking ourselves this question repeatedly. Is he really our greatest treasure? Or are there other things that come into our lives that compete with him? Is our life itself more valuable to us than Jesus? Satan wanted to find this out when it came to the disciples. He wanted to see if they would get blown away like Judas, in which case they would belong to him forever. But he couldn't do this without God's permission. So the devil dares Jesus to let him put the disciples to the test. Satan's never satisfied, is he? He wants to see us sin and fail. He wants to damn every soul that he can get his hands on. And he's been greedy like this from the beginning. It explains why he slithered his way into Eden and tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. It explains why he tempted Cain to kill his brother, why he kept the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. It explains why he went spying all over the world in the days of Job to find someone that he could put to the test. It explains why he came after Jesus in the wilderness. It explains why Peter himself would write later, your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's always ravenous in his appetite for lost sinners. What Jesus said to Simon Peter, therefore, is also true about us. Satan wants you. Satan desires you, and he will stop at nothing to have you. And if he cannot have you because you already belong to Christ, he will stop at nothing to destroy your witness. He will stop at nothing to hinder your usefulness in the kingdom. Satan is always looking for someone to consume. His demonic influence is there in the selfish move that we make to keep what we have for ourselves rather than to give it away in the name of Christ. It's there in the conflict with a brother or sister that tempts us to go off looking for another church where I don't have to be around this person. It's there in the sudden impulse to click on that link to a website that we ought not cast our eyes upon. It's there in the secret resentment that we have against someone's spiritual leadership, whether in home or the church. It's there in the temptation to give up on a difficult relationship or in the despair we feel about ever making any progress about the primary sin that seems to dominate our heart's daily agenda. Satan and his demons are always lurking in the shadows, desperately hoping that one day we will just forget it all, walk away from Christianity entirely. Walk away from Christ. One of the most dangerous things in the world would be to think that we are not in any danger. And that's the mistake that Peter made. When Jesus told Peter what Satan wanted to have, he also told him that Peter would turn away, at least for a little while. It says in verse 32, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and you, 
Once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now this time, Jesus uses the singular pronoun. Here he's speaking specifically about Peter himself. Now undoubtedly, Jesus prayed for the other disciples too, but this particular prayer, this particular petition was for Peter. The way Jesus prayed assumed Peter would turn away. You see that there in the text? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Let me ask you this. Has the Father ever refused to answer a prayer of his Son? The answer is no. Because the Father and Son are always in unity. They are always on the same page. This is not the case for us. Because we don't know always the will of the Father. We know the will of the Father only insofar as he has revealed it to us in his word. But in the specific elements of our lives, when different situations come to us and we're praying about them, we really don't know what the Lord has in store. And so there are times when we pray for things that the Lord is going to have to say no to. He says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. He's still answering our prayers. He's still using our prayer to bring about his purposes. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus and the Father are always in perfect harmony. And so when Jesus prays, he inevitably, inevitably prays according to the will of the Father. And his prayers are always answered. With that in mind, look back at verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So we have to assume that that prayer is going to be answered. But Jesus goes on. And you, when once you have turned again. So, in Jesus' mind, our particular failure in a given situation, in a given moment, in a given circumstance, is not equated with our faith failing. Peter denied Jesus three times... And yet that was not evidence that his faith had failed. How do we understand that? Well, it's because of what we see after Peter denies Christ. He goes off and weeps bitterly. And then he returns. He had failed in the moment But his faith had not failed. Because he didn't turn away from Jesus. When he was brought to repentance, he turned toward Jesus. His faith was there all the time, as weak as it may have been. When you sin as a child of God, that does not mean that your faith has failed. For someone's faith to fail... 
That means, by definition, that they have turned away completely. It means that their faith, as we saw in the book of James in our study this past week, that faith that has failed was not saving faith. It was a false faith. It was a superficial faith. It was a profession of something that was not real. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, and it didn't. Because Jesus says, you're going to turn again. And that's the evidence that your faith has not failed. Because you repent. You come back. And when you have repented, when you have come back to me, I still have work for you. Jesus is going to, uh, Peter is going to deny Jesus three times, and yet he is not put on the shelf. Jesus says, I'm going to use you in spite of your denials, in spite of your failure, in spite of your sin. You're going to come back, and then you're going to be useful to me. So he could turn back, obviously, only if he first turned away. But Peter doesn't want to hear this. Peter's pride, once again, gets in the way. He said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And there's Peter for you. Often in error, never in doubt like so many of us. (laughs) Here he's, he's saying that he knew better than Jesus did, since he would never go away. He would never betray him. And if he never betrays him, if he never denies him, then there's never a need to come back to him. Peter doesn't understand himself, but Jesus does. His statement sounds bold, After all, this was the first time one of the disciples said that he was ready to walk with Jesus in the way of the cross. But it was an empty boast. After arguing, you'll remember, about which of them was the greatest, Peter tries to prove it by saying he's willing to go with Jesus all the way to death. And however much we might admire the man's courage, His overconfidence, his pride, put him in great spiritual danger. Peter's confidence was entirely misplaced because his confidence was not in Christ. His confidence was in himself. If his confidence was in Christ, he would have acknowledged the truth of what Jesus said instead of arguing with him. So rather than asking God for more strength, he announces that he's already prepared to face every and every, uh, any and every danger. And Jesus tells Peter then that he is heading for disaster. He said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times until you have denied three times that you 
known me. What a, a shocking prophecy. Peter would deny Jesus almost immediately that very night. He would deny Jesus repeatedly, not once, not twice, three times. He would deny Jesus emphatically, protesting that he didn't even know the man that he had just spent three years with. And sadly, we know that this prophecy came true. By the end of the night, Peter would weep bitter tears of repentance. He failed because he tried to be strong in his own strength not knowing his own weakness. And that's a warning for us not to make the same mistake. We should never think that we are beyond the reach of any particular sin or that we can withstand temptation by our own virtue, our own will, our own strength. If we have any confidence in ourselves, instead of having all our confidence in Christ, then we are as likely to fall as Peter. It's in the areas where we think that we are strong, that we are in the most danger. Because we don't perceive the desperate weakness of, uh, that is at the heart of the very best things we do for God. When I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says. But the opposite is also true. As Peter could testify, when I think I'm strong, that's when I'm at my weakest. And as it turned out, Peter was not ready to go with Jesus to prison or to death. Satan sifted him like wheat, hoping he would be blown away. But nevertheless, Paul, uh, Peter rather, he fell into sin, but he did not fall away from the faith. Falling into sin and failing faith are not the same thing. And what an encouragement that is. We all fall into sin. But when we do, there is a remedy. We confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the basis of our assurance When we sin, it's not over. When we sin, God doesn't let go of us. When we sin, he holds on all the more. And eventually he will restore us. He will bring us to repentance. And he will use us once again. Peter knew the Savior who did two great things to protect him from danger. Jesus prayed for Peter, and he died for Peter, saving him by his intercession and his atonement. And this is our salvation as well, brothers and sisters. The devil is always trying to drag us down with our sins, but the Savior of sinners died in our place and now lives to ever intercede for us. Jesus prayed for Peter, protecting him by the power of his intercession. After warning that what Satan would try to do to him, Jesus gave Peter this great promise. But I have prayed for you. 
Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And the word but puts everything that Jesus would do over against everything that Satan would try to do. And everything that Satan would try to do will be ineffective because of what Jesus does. Satan wanted to destroy Peter. Jesus wanted to save him. Satan petitioned to have Peter for himself, but Jesus prayed that Peter would hold on to him forever. Peter was saved because he was over on the Savior's side of the sentence. He did not fall away. He returned to Jesus. It's important to notice what Jesus prayed for. He did not ask any of the things that we would probably have asked. He did not pray that Satan would leave Peter alone. In the providence of God, who works in every situation for the good of his people and the glory of his name, Satan was permitted to make the attack. Jesus did not pray that Peter would never sin. It was God's plan for Peter to see the limits of his own strength and then out of that painful experience to see how much grace God had for him so that he would then be able to encourage his brothers in their own struggle with sin. Jesus did not pray that Peter would have a rich and easy life, one with, with, with one spiritual success after another. Jesus only prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. If Jesus is the all-wise God, and if this is his prayer for Peter, then it must be the most important thing for us to have. Faith is the very thing that Satan was trying to take away from Peter. If Peter were to stop believing, then he would no longer belong to Jesus. Now we know that there's a lot of other theology that goes behind this. If Peter ever had stopped believing, it wouldn't really be that he stopped believing. It would be that he didn't have genuine faith in the first place. We understand all of that. We'll be talking about some of that this afternoon. But on its face, as you're reading through this passage, this is what we need to understand. Jesus prays for us, not that we would have temptation removed from us, not that we would have the danger of satanic attack removed from us, but that we would remain faithful, even if in the moment we fail, we would be restored. This is what Satan always wants to take away from us. The faith in Christ that makes a believer a believer. Spurgeon once said this, The point of Satan's chief attack on a believer is his faith. We are engrafted into Christ by faith. And faith is the point of contact between the believing soul and the living Christ. If, therefore, Satan could manage to cut through the graft just there, then he would defeat the Savior's work most completely. Consider everything that we would lose if our faith were to fail. The Bible says we are justified by faith. Take away faith, therefore, and we cannot be righteous before God. 
The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Take away faith, therefore, and nothing that we do is accepted by God. The Bible says that faith enables us to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Take faith away, and the devil will destroy us. The Bible says that the righteous will live by faith. So take faith away, and you take away life itself. Because the believer is nothing without his faith. There is no life in us without faith. On the other hand, if we still have faith, then we live invincibly in the power of Christ. The stories of scripture prove that by faith, people conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in power, put foreign armies to flight, and received back their dead by resurrection. Hebrews 11. This is the faith that Jesus prayed For Peter to have a faith that saves in any and every situation, even unto death. This is the prayer that Jesus loves to pray for all his disciples. The Savior's prayer for a sinner's faith not to fail. Jesus is busy praying for us right now. The Bible says that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Amen, maybe? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious truth. You need to understand how important this is. Christ is interceding for us. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Your salvation is dependent upon the intercession of Christ. And maintaining your faith to the end is dependent upon the intercession of Christ. And we can have assurance that that will be effective because Christ is always interceding for us. It's an amazing thing. If only we could see Jesus and listen to what he's saying to the Father. How glorious would that be? What courage we would take to live for him through every trouble that life brings to us. If we could hear his intercession. We can't. But we have the promise. He is praying for us that our faith will not fail. He's praying about your chronic pain. He's praying about your physical weakness. He's praying that you would not stop trusting in the goodness of God. He's praying about your troubled marriage. He's praying about the alienation that you feel. He's praying about your financial situation. He's praying about that sense of discouragement and despair that comes to us in the dark of the night. He's praying about the way you wander into sin. He's praying that you will never stop trusting in his forgiveness. He is praying. He is interceding. 
concerning everything that you need him to be praying for. And because he is the son of the father, his prayers will be answered. Your faith will not fail. He will keep you to the end. Peter's faith did not fail, although Peter failed. He turned away, but he also returned, believing that by faith his sins were forgiven. And Christ had not abandoned him. And because he had faith, he was able to go on and be profitable in the work of the kingdom, strengthening his brothers the way Jesus told him to. And the same thing will happen in our lives. God the Son is interceding for us with the Father. How can his petition fail? It can't. Jesus prays more wisely, more frequently, more efficaciously than we can ourselves. He prays more for us than we can ever pray for ourselves. And so although we may go through trials and we may even fall into terrible sin as Peter did, we will not be lost because Jesus has prayed that our faith will not fail. Whatever desperate situation we bring to him, with all of our complaints, with all of our objections, the Savior of sinners holds us in his hand. And he says, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Well, there was something else that Jesus did for Peter. Something even more important than praying for him. Something infinitely more costly Before Jesus told his disciples about this saving work, he also gave them some unexpected instructions. You see that in verses 35 and 36 to begin with. He said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has a sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now these instructions are unexpected because they seem to contradict what Jesus told his disciples much earlier when he sent them out on their first mission. On that occasion, after giving them the power and authority to heal people and to cast out demons, Jesus said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. You can go back and see that in Luke 9 and 10. The disciples took almost nothing with them on that mission trip, but they also lacked nothing. God supplied all their need as they were able to testify. The disciples thus learned that when doing God's work in God's way, he will always supply. Now these men were entering a new missionary situation, one that required a different approach than the one Jesus had sent them on earlier. On their first mission trip, they were still in Israel where the people of God could meet their daily needs. But soon, they would be going out into the wider world, where they could not expect God's people to provide for their ministry, because they're going out to places where God's people did not exist. 
yet. They were going to preach the gospel so that those who were there in those places would become God's people, but there was no one there who was going to be able to provide for them. David Gooding writes, Missionaries of the gospel could no longer expect the nation to meet the costs of their maintenance as on previous occasions. They would have to pay their own expenses and fight their own way with no financial help from the nation or the unconverted. The time had come, therefore, for the disciples to take a little food and money with them. There's a time and a place to live in total poverty without property to call one's own, but there's also a time and place to work hard and plan ahead. Today, the people of God are living in Luke 22, not Luke 9. Of course, the other crucial difference in what they had done and what they were going to do is that Jesus would no longer be there in the flesh. Jesus would be sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for them. Now this doesn't mean that every Christian and every missionary ought to presume on God to meet their needs out of nowhere every day. It's right and good for people in ministry to make provision for their future needs while at the same time trusting in God to provide that provision. Some people are called to a life of poverty in one respect or another. But most of the time, God calls us to live and to work and to plan. There's an interesting correlation to this in the modern day, this kind of preparation that we're talking about. There's something called the Back to Jerusalem missionary movement in China. And the Back to Jerusalem movement consists of Chinese believers sent to carry out, to carry the gospel back along what used to be known as the Silk Road. But before they set out, they receive intensive, practical, and spiritual training. And that training includes how to reach across cultural and language barriers, how to evangelize specific people groups that they will come in contact with, how to suffer and die for Christ, how to witness for the Lord, and if need be, how to escape. One leader explains it this way, we know that sometimes the Lord sends us to prison to witness for him. But we also believe that the devil sometimes wants us in prison to stop the ministry God has called us to do. We teach the missionaries special skills, such as how to free themselves from handcuffs within 30 seconds and how to jump from a second-story window without injuring themselves. That kind of training isn't customary for missionaries in the West, but is very much in keeping with the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples to be prepared for the hard road of missionary service. What may still be hard to understand is why Jesus told his disciples to go out and buy a sword, How do we understand that? In my study of the passage this week, frankly, I was stunned to see just how many scholars have concluded that when Jesus tells his disciples to purchase a sword, he was speaking metaphorically. 
There is no such claim when it comes to the money belt or the bag. Nobody claims that Jesus was speaking metaphorically about those things. And there's nothing contextually or nothing in the, in the grammar that would force us to understand these things metaphorically. To make that distinction between the other things that Jesus tells them to bring and the sword can only have one reason. Only one reason for making that distinction, and that is, I don't like it. But like it or not, that's what he says. And when the disciples say, well, we've got two swords, Jesus doesn't say to them, guys, can't you understand metaphor when you hear it? No, they respond as you would expect them to respond if they assumed that Jesus was speaking literally. And Jesus responds as you would expect him to respond if he believed that the disciples properly and accurately understood him. Jesus tells them, To take literal swords. They were to take something that they would be able to use to defend themselves from attack. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Jesus doesn't say carry a knife. He says carry a military weapon, a sword. Now at this time, most people would have owned a sword. That's why the disciples could immediately say, yeah, we've got two of them. It was not an unusual thing. You would have a sword in your home. You or your servants would carry it with you. There were rabid dogs everywhere in Israel at this time. There were robbers along the way. People carried swords for self-defense. And Jesus impressed on the disciples the importance of bearing one. That if they didn't have one, they ought to go and get one. Sell your coat if you have to. And the disciples quickly check whether they had any such weapons among them there in the upper room. And they come up with two. Two swords between the twelve. And note again Jesus' response. Jesus does not frown and shake his head in disappointment to find that his disciples were bearing arms. He's not surprised. He simply says, all right, that's enough. He gave his approval. Two swords ought to be enough to defend the twelve from whatever dogs or thieves or other dangers they might run into. There was no need for all of them to carry weapons if they were going to be together for the foreseeable future. Two swords were sufficient. Now, as we'll see later in the same chapter, Jesus is not connecting the sword with their future apostolic ministry. He's not instructing them to make disciples of all nations at the point of a sword has nothing to do with that. As we will see, when Peter used one of these swords to defend Jesus from those who came to arrest him, he is rebuked for what he had done. 
That wasn't the purpose of the sword. The sword was intended for defense, not offense. This is all very useful from a practical point of view. But the most important thing Jesus told his disciples concerning what he was about to do had to do with their salvation. It's not just the intercession of Jesus that saves, it's also his atonement. The death that he died for us when he was crucified between two thieves. The disciples' new ministry situation, the one that required the money belt and the bag and the sword, was connected to the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. And so Jesus says in verse 37, I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus Christ had a clear understanding of his calling and full confidence in the truth of the scripture. And he knew that all of the promises of the Old Testament in regard to salvation would be fulfilled in his person and his work. When Jesus reads those Old Testament prophecies, like this one from Isaiah 53... He knew that they were all about him. Which must be really weird. <laughs> Writing these things that were written centuries ago and knowing, yeah, that's about me. That's... But he knew that. All of those promises, all of those prophecies would be filled in his own life and death. And they were. Jesus was innocent of all charges, and yet he was numbered among transgressors. At the end of his legal trials, he was unjustly convicted of committing capital crime. He was taken to a place of execution, and he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. This is what Jesus came to do, not simply to die, but to die in this way. In a death that put him in the place of sinners. When scripture says that Jesus was numbered with transgressors, it means much more than simply that he was regarded as some kind of criminal. It means that he took all of our sins upon himself and then died in our place, that death that we deserve to die. We are the transgressors he is numbered, uh, he is numbered with. It's not just the two thieves that he was crucified with. He took upon himself our sin and so was numbered with us for our sake. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was counted as a sinner. In doing his saving work, the savior of sinners took the guilt upon himself. And once he did that, he was obligated to pay the death penalty, which all of our sin deserves. When Jesus died on the cross, he was paying the price for Peter's sin. What kind of sinner was Peter? Well, among other things, he was a denier, which meant that when, he denied, when, when Jesus died for Peter, Jesus died as a denier because he took Peter's sin upon himself. But it was not just Peter's sin for which Jesus died. It was all the sins of all his people. 
our idolatry, our adultery, our theft, our dishonesty. Jesus took them all upon himself on the cross. Whatever kind of sinner we happen to be, Jesus was counted as that kind of sinner on the cross. Now, Jesus was not a sinner, of course, but he was dying in the place of sinners. And therefore, God counted him as a sinner on the cross. He was made to be sin, though he had no sin. And he did this to pay the debt that our sin deserves. And now we can look to the cross and we can say, now, there is the Savior of sinners, the one who took my place, the one who died in my place. Now later the disciples understood what Jesus was doing for their salvation, of course. But at the time, they seemed to have missed it entirely. The disciples could not yet understand what Jesus was really doing for their salvation. And they would not understand it until Jesus went ahead and did it. But if we listen to Jesus and we look at what he did on the cross, then we can understand his saving work. Jesus was numbered among the transgressors, transgressors like us, so that in him we would be counted among the righteous before God. Believe in the saving work of the sinner's Savior. He is praying for you now that your faith would not fail. Trust in him. And all that we have read about this morning, all that is promised, all that Christ has accomplished, it will be true for us. Praise God. Father, thank you so much. What wonderful promises. What encouragement, Father, we have seen this morning that Jesus, the Savior of sinners, has died in our place, has risen from the dead, has ascended to your right hand, and even now, as we speak, is interceding for us that our faith may not fail. Oh, Father, thank you so much. May we leave this day encouraged, Father, to go on walking with Christ because of what he has done in and for us. These things, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.